Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we will be reading and discussing Liu Shishin's Death's End, the third and final part of the Remembrance of Rose Past series. This is season five, episode three, Australia, covering the second half of part two. We've previously talked about the three-body problem and the dark forest, and have varying levels of knowledge on the book and the series. My name is Dan, and I've read the entire series. This is Tim, and I've only read up to this week's reading. This is Amin, and I've also only read up to this week's reading. And also, along with Dan and Talia, I co-host the Rehydrate Spoiler Cast. So if you've read the entire series and or don't care about spoilers, you should check that out, too. I had only one uh, item of follow-up. It's not even only follow-up. I just happened to see it on Reddit recently. Uh, and there is a apparently a three-body problem manga that has been released, and I was checking it out a little bit. And it looks pretty interesting. Yeah, so if you have read The Three-Body Problem, and apparently I would assume that you have if you're this part in the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you're interested in looking at that and kind of getting just a different visual take on The Three-Body Problem, it's, it's worth looking at. Yeah, I guess that'd be the first piece of media to put forth some sort of visualization of the story. Yeah, I've seen like other like concept up before or like, you know, one-offs. Sure. And there's been like trailers of movies that never got made but yeah this would be this is there's also a, a minecraft version of three-body problem which i think they got all the way up to some parts of death's end i don't know i don't i i, I wasn't super into it but they they put a lot of work into it <laughs> apparently but yeah is it, the, is it just a minecraft like world just themed with three-body problem or is it like some like machinima thing uh i think it's like a machinima thing like they oh, they wow. made like the world like the story out of minecraft and like they post the characters around or whatever wow crazy yeah is the, is the manga like has it covered the whole series yet or is it just like as far as one? i could tell it's only a three-body problem it's not even all a three-body problem so far oh, okay. like they're releasing so it going. like yeah yeah they're releasing like some small sections like every week or something and this reddit post they had like a list they had a, a link to the the entire first or everything that's released of the first book so far so yeah it's worth it. i i kind of scrolled past it. it looks pretty interesting gives you a chance to uh kind of see you know see what people think that the characters look like <laughs> all right let's jump into the summary for this episode chung Xin's time as sword holder comes to an abrupt end as six trisolarum probes speed their way towards earth she only has 10 minutes to consider whether or not to activate the deterrent system she realizes that she is not able to erase 3.5 billion years of history of the Earth and throws away the button. Shortly after, the probes reach Earth and destroy all the gravitational wave antennas on the Earth, disabling the dark force deterrence, but leave Chengxin unharmed. When Chengxin and AA go to examine the impact site, she is also met by Sofan, who tells her that Trisolaris predicted this outcome for years. Gravity has also been destroyed and finally says, get ready to go to Australia, you pitiful bugs. Over the course of the next year, the entirety of humanity is forced to relocate to Australia as part of what's called the Great Resettlement. Conditions quickly devolve into a fight for food and resources, even with humanity, even turning to theocracy and dictatorship. And our security force is established to force people who are not willing to relocate, eventually turning into the indiscriminate killing of people. The Earth Resistance Movement is also formed to fight the Trisolarans, despite the fact that all their moves can be tracked by the Sofans. Sofan announces the ultimate plan to defang and force humanity to fight over resources to the point where they're forced to eat each other to get the human population down to about 50 million people. Upon hearing this, Chengxin finds herself going blind. Meanwhile, outboard gravity, 
James Hunter, who has been entrusted with destroying the gravitational wave antenna should anything happen. But once the dropout attack starts to happen, he finds the system to destroy the antenna is not functioning. Soon after, the droplets change course and seem to die. And finally, they're boarded by the crew of the Blue Space. The crew of the Blue Space lays out what they believe what happened. The Trisolarians had attacked Earth and coordinated the dropout attack to coincide with the sort-over handover ceremony. After a long discussion, they vote as a combined crew to activate the universal broadcast system and send the gravitational waves into the dark forest of space. Blue's face then reveals the secrets of how they dismantle the droplets and what the strange phenomena they've been seeing uh, aboard the gravity are. In this region of space, they have been encountering fourth dimensional fragments, which they have been able to enter and experience interacting the world in higher dimensions. During further exploration of 4D space, they encounter beings that reside there. They're able to find a way to communicate with a ring-shaped object, and it cryptically tells them that it is a tomb and that they are fish in the puddle of a dying sea. After exiting the 4D space, they observe the fragments shrinking and finally the ring itself losing its fourth dimension. Back on Earth, a year after the Great Resettlement has been completed, the news that the Universal Broadcast System was received by Trisolaris was met with cheering from humanity and retreat from the Trisolarians. Humanity would be returning home from Australia. Maybe I missed this in the summary, but wasn't wasn't a tris so so that last the last part you read about the summary was that when the Trisolarian sun was destroyed and basically Trisolaris was destroyed, or did I misread something? No, the so the basically in this part of the chapter, the only thing that happened was that Trisolaris got the broadcast, and so the probes kind of leave Earth. So Trisolaris itself isn't destroyed; it's just. The dark force has been activated basically from from gravity and everyone's like oh probably it's going to be uh <laughs> like like I, I think everyone believes in the tri in the dark force the uh, you know theory so much that the trisolarians then veer off course the, all the all, their new fleet that is able to achieve light speed now veers off course the droplets of earth uh, and so on basically says all right well we're gonna we'll help you resettle back to your original location but the Trisolarians, like they believe that both Trisolaris and Earth are going to be destroyed because of the broadcast, uh, because of the, the close proximity of the planets. Oh, for, for some, I must have misread something because I thought that a Trisolarian, maybe, maybe I'm thinking of something I'm not supposed to think of right now. So you can cut <laughs> this whole part out. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I took it. That uh, they they just realized, oh, we're they all believe we're all now uh and humanity is in such a dire you know dire straits that they're like cheering this on they're like well maybe we only got a couple centuries left but at least we don't have to like live like this anymore right yeah i mean the uh, conditions in australia are, are pretty dire there uh, yeah. and it seemed to be you know the trisolar is pushing them towards even a more dire you know immediate future with having to like, eat people and stuff yeah, I wouldn't give a shit at that, but I'd just, you know, be just happy to see a big f you to the Trisolarians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although it still sort of begs the question that if they all, I mean, I guess the Trisolarians, you know, they revert course because they're just attempting to do some sort of escape now. Like, you know, if they believe like, oh, well, both worlds are still going to be destroyed. Like, I guess they feel that they have a fighting chance by not, I guess I'm wondering why they still didn't like attempt to carry out their plan with Earth and at least maybe take it over and extract its resources or, you know, give themselves, you know, some sort of fighting chance, but maybe. 
Well, I mean, it takes a lot of resources to just stop, right? Like they talked right. a lot about like, it takes a lot of time to accelerate and a lot of time to decelerate. Um, right. And they probably feel like they have better chance of just, because like they are assuming that Trisolaris is going to be destroyed and Earth is going to be destroyed because of the close proximity of the systems, right? So if they can right. see Trisolaris, they can see, oh, there's another one over here and they're communicating each other. Yeah, I think they probably feel... One, because they've achieved light speed now, they can probably get to other habitable planets and That's figure true. it out, yeah. you know? And then two, like, I don't know. I don't have a second point, but <laughs> the, fir the first thing is that, yeah, they figure they could just uh, find a different place that would suit their needs better because the both worlds are uninhabitable now because they're imminently going to be destroyed as, as much as they think. So th the first thing I want to talk about, I mean, I, I, there's a lot that happens in these in these this section here. Um, so I kind of wanted to digest it, digest it, you know, as a group, kind of piece by piece here. So let's start with first with a Trisolarian attack. You know, we left out last time with kind of a cliffhanger of like, oh, they're going to attack or they're not going to attack. And they do immediately. <laughs> the part I found was interesting was that it's, again, human overconfidence um, that causes them to lose confidence. You know, they talked a lot about, oh, there used to be 23 gravitational wave antennas. And because of, you know, some terrorist attack that happened and, you know, we don't need to have all this deterrence in place. We just have, you know, four antennas and that should be enough. Or sorry, not four. They had five total. And so like they dismantle them, but that becomes the the reason that they fail. And also like they don't put them in space because they're also worried about the events that happen with Blue Space and and Bronze Age by making them they're really worried about those those gravitational wave antennas falling into the wrong hands. So anyway, I found that really, really interesting to me. Well I guess the reason why like that was a huge mistake was their you know to keep them all on earth was their close proximity to each other now they could like if i'm if i read that correctly it's because the droplets could destroy them all within a matter of you know with, within a short amount of time um, right whereas if they had been scattered among you know in space then no matter what they you know they could have scattered them to the point where no matter what like one of them would get off a signal. Even if they had like still 19 of them on Earth, right? Like that still took a little bit for the droplets to just destroy one of the gravitational wave antennas, like not that long, but still enough time for, yeah, one of the other ones to send the the the, the broadcast. But yeah, they should have done it in space. Did, did either of you take this as a commentary on nuclear disarmament? And I, I know... I know the so-called Cold War between the USSR and US is no longer going on. But I remember uh, when I was younger reading something about how you know US and Soviet Union each had like 2,000 nuclear missiles and it was enough to destroy the world 20 times over. I'm making up numbers here. Yeah. Um, but then the whole idea was if they just had 10 each, that would be enough to deter each other from war. And I was, as I was reading this about the... Um, yeah, I, I just I just saw it as a parallel to that about how how disarmament could be to the bare necessity, I guess, to that point is actually a weakness. So it's good to have more. I don't know. I, I don't know if you guys looked at it like that at all, but that was what came to mind as I was reading this. Well, it's definitely an extrapolation of, you know, mutually assured destruction, you know, uh, theory. In fact, I think they even I mean, in at some point in the book, I think they even like he even makes a reference to that right yeah i think so yeah and I, I, I forget where but but yeah the the notion of like I, I guess i didn't draw some you know like parallel to i mean because the u.s the u.s is stockpiled 
like I, I don't I don't know like you know to what degree it's cut back its nuclear armament, but it hasn't done so like that much as far as my understanding is. But uh, I could be completely wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more that the if if they had gone down to like yeah, basically like if they had gone if they had basically put all say like the the weapons in one location, which is basically what we're doing. Like you know, we're putting them all on Earth, right? Because the droplets can, can attack, but like, say we put all the the missiles in Washington D.C. or something, <laughs> you know, and then like the Russians just happen to, you know, just just bomb there, and then like it loses all effectiveness. Yeah, but sure. yeah, I, I think there's definitely. I mean, I'm almost positive that there's parallels there that he's drawing, uh, you know, to the Cold War to into the now deterrence and just at a more co- you know, cosmic scale <laughs> across uh, galaxies, I guess. Yeah, I think what Amelia is saying is that it, it's kind of like why, you know, any smaller nation wants to get their hands on at least one nuclear weapon or so, because the, you know, the capability to hit one city or so is enough of a deterrent that you don't need a whole lot to throw your weight around or to, you know, to think that you are an effective, uh, that you can mount an effective deterrence and that this is where humanity got overconfident and that it felt like it could reduce its arsenal or yeah, like not go overboard. I mean, they spend a lot of time talking, I mean, like there's constant references to like, Oh, you know, we don't really, we don't really need this deterrence anymore. We're good with Trisolarians. Like that's the reason they voted Changshin is the, is the source of there. Cause they're like, we don't really need someone who's actually going to activate deterrence. Cause like it'll probably just go away eventually because we're cool now. Right, yeah, and and it's definitely it seems to be a recurring theme throughout these books is that humanity like is always kind of like looking, f- taking the most optimistic uh, approach to everything, and yeah, yeah, falling into complacency, and yeah, maybe it's like some you know some basic flaw in humanity that it's you know like we're we're soft-hearted enough that we think the best outcome is going to happen and that we do not prepare for the worst case scenario you know uh luo g was the the one guy him and him and wade where we're ready to yeah the and, you know and, and even like humanity themselves they become more feminized and more soft-hearted sure. or, or so and like i think that's sort of be that that's supposed to represent like humanity is sort of lacks attitude around the dark forest like even though the dark forest is such like a harsh concept like humanity just like chooses to ignore it and everyone freaked out when the dark forest was revealed right when low g like 50 or 60 years ago revealed it and then they more and more is complacent to the point where people got more feminized and <laughs> and then you know de- deactivated you know basically like deactivated their advantage over the trisolarians so i feel like i was a i was kind of right in the in the last episode where the absorption and creation of like humid, uh, like culture by the Trisolarans of human culture and, you know, creating movies and television shows was kind of this big fake out in a way to convince, you know, definitely convince humans (laughs) to, you know, that they had softened too, and that there is this shared, you know, maybe shared understanding, which yeah, led humans to put their guard down a bit. Yeah, I mean, I really like the part where they talk about how the Trisolarans, like, they planned this whole thing to the point where, like, they launched their lightspeed ships, like, w- with the hope that they wouldn't detect it before they actually activated the the sword holder changeover, you know? So they kind of engineered the whole thing. So if they had seen, like, the lightspeed ships is, like, it was, like, 30 days later or something, they would have known something was happening. Yeah, and so, like, yeah, definitely, like, this whole thing is, like, a long con by the Trisolarans. So as soon as they started absorbing 
the deceit of the humans, like they're able to kind of engineer like this whole scenario where they, you know, whereby Chengxin and, and it's not really her fault, I think. Uh, right. It's like just humanity's fault of yeah, just being kind of lackadaisical. Wait, what's not, but it's her fault she didn't trigger it though, right? I mean, like that's, so that's a very hotly contested issue. <laughs> uh, you know, among, this is probably, she is probably the most controversial of, of characters in the whole series. So the, you know, I, I kind of picked out a couple of quotes specifically around this and like over and over again, they keep telling her, you know, it's not your fault. I mean, she specific, she didn't press the button. That's true. But she was set up in a way that she was never going to press that button. You know, they said like she had a 10% chance of actually activating deterrence. Um, but humanity wanted someone like that in, you know, in control of that button, right? So there's a couple of quotes, like one from Sofan here saying, you acted just as we anticipated. Don't be too hard on yourself. The fact that humankind chose you and they chose this result out of all the members of the human race, you're the only innocent. Um, and then the, later on, the the elder in Australia says, child, you fail to hold the enemy's gaze, but it's really not your fault, not your fault. I fall on the side that it's not her, her fault that she didn't activate deterrence. It's humanity's fault for choosing her, I guess. That's kind of my, my take on it. But like I said, it's really hotly contested <laughs> the issue. So I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's sort of an impossible ask to, you know, to lay on anyone's shoulders. I would think, given that you can't really predict the future, are you you're really just going to blow everything up? You know, I guess I would say for myself, I would make this, even knowing all of this, I would probably still make the t- same decision she did. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, same. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm a human. There's no, you know, like it's I'm like just I'm a representative. She's a representative representative of humanity for all its strengths and faults. So. So, so in that context, is Luo Ji a bad guy then? Because he would have, we assume he would have pushed a button. That's a good question. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. Like, the, we we actually don't know if he would have pressed it. I, I mean, they said like ninety percent he would have he would have pressed it, right? I, I don't know. I don't know if he would have. Maybe he um, he guy probably would have. I mean, by is he a, a human being? You know, so changed by his experiences seems like that yeah maybe he was just he was just not your typical human maybe maybe this is the one job he could do because if he were you know given power in any other you know circumstance or something like would he be a despot or a sociopath or something at this point i don't know but yeah you know he was uh seemed like his experiences had uniquely shaped him into a a type of person that that wasn't really representative of humanity as a whole. And maybe that made him the right person to hold the button, but yeah. Like, right. Like yeah. I get what the book is trying, is trying to say with regards to Cheng Xin is that she, humanity has reached this point where she is, you know, the genuine representative of their attitudes and feelings at this point. So it's not really her fault. I fall on the side of, she had a job and she didn't do her job, whether or not <laughs> she was, whether or not she was capable of doing the job, that's a different matter. But yeah, that was that was the one thing she was supposed to do. And she she made the conscious decision to not do what she was supposed to do. So I guess I don't feel differently about the character. Hmm. Maybe maybe because I already knew this was going to happen. But I, I don't feel differently about the character. But I also don't think it's not her fault. I mean, I guess like, you know, Villagy definitely 
bought into the dark forest principle, right? And maybe Chengxin doesn't in the same way. She is has a more optimistic view of like, well, even if the Tresolarians come here and take over the planet, like obviously bad stuff happened. And, and I don't think she could have foreseen the Great Resettlement, but that's still probably preferable to the entire Earth being destroyed, right? Um, so maybe like that was her thinking of, or maybe I guess, I guess let me take that back. Maybe she did believe in the dark forest theory and didn't want to see the certain destruction of, of earth. Right. And the alternative is that at least humanity is still around and can take their chances. And maybe it has a more optimistic view of like what those chances would be given that earth is still a place where if she had activated it, then maybe the earth would have been destroyed and then all life would have been gone for sure. That doesn't make yeah, her a great sword holder, but right yeah it's i mean I, I guess it's you know how much you actually believe in the dark forest you know uh deterrence you know concept and even though you know we had this one example of you know luigi doing the whole spell thing and seeing this you know planet get destroyed i mean i guess if, if you're gonna you know like why why not take your chances with seeing what 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 happens if you don't do it? If you if you actually you know it's like if, if you actually believe that like everything's going to be destroyed, then you're at, at the point at this point you're just pressing the buttons simply to spite the Trisolarans, isn't it? At least more interesting, or you know, is there a chance for something good, some some life to continue if you don't press it? I guess that's the, the I mean those those are the doubts that would enter my mind and that would keep me from pressing the button. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I always thought like, well, maybe, maybe I come down on the side of Chengxin. It's not her fault. It's because like, that's what I would do. You know, I wouldn't want to be blamed either. Right. <laughs> so I, I guess maybe I more identify with her character and like, that's how I think I would act. And maybe that's why I don't get, there's, there's always like this debate online of like Wade versus Chengxin <laughs> uh, and it's, it's dumb. Yeah. I always fall on the, the side of Chengxin because I feel like that's how I would act. I do want to talk more about the also the the chapter of the Great Resettlement because a lot happens in that chapter. Yeah, it's like there's it's a very densely packed sociological uh, piece, right? It talks about like how, how how quickly humanity would kind of fall and just like kind of crumble uh, into into all these different ways. Um, and I, I thought it was a I don't know I, I find it really fascinating that that whole part and that's, that's why I named the, the episode Australia because like that's you know it's a super interesting. People, it sticks in your mind. I think, um, you know, after you read the series of like, how would humanity react to being, you know, this very exaggerated, overpopulated state where you're fighting for resources? Like, how would humanity, like, how would the social structures change? Like, I really like the. I mean, I, I say like, but I think what I mean is interesting. How like the the native Australians, you know, like will will keep the the major cities to themselves and all the weapons to themselves, and like for only native Australians, and then. Um, yeah, people, and then they have this the Earth Security Force. Right. The the basically like the, the it, it reminded me of the um the collaborators and like you know, in France of the of the, with the Nazis right where like they're like going you know helping the Nazis like help you know help help the Germans to you know root out the the people that they wanted to kill. You even even so much as like the guy in like the the flying car like shooting people indiscriminately reminded me of right. the, the guy from Fumble Metal Jacket <laughs> just like shooting right. Vietnamese <laughs> it's it's not going to attract the best of humanity you know, no you know, uh, <laughs> you know this you know if, if and you you're probably already thrust into an environment you know, where yeah human value of human life is going down precipitously so 
and then you put the worst people in charge they're they're not going to show any restraint either it's probably their last gasp of like you know power right yeah yeah humanity if anything like yeah any small bit of power they have they'll cling to it and like you know overuse it especially in dire circumstance yeah i mean this whole reading set you know this whole section you know for this week and all that is like i i won't say like jump the shark for it because that, that's not that that doesn't you know that's not accurate to what i mean here but uh like you know this whole like this whole series has been like i feel like you know lucius shin like he took a bunch of sociology classes in in in, in college and a bunch of astrophysics classes in college and this whole <laughs> series is like him trying to take the kitchen seeking approach and like apply like every like you know cool astrophysics thing he learned and every concept he learned about human sociology or political science or whatever and all that and like you know like tries to put some vignette or some chapter or some element of that into these books and i think it kind of like reached ahead here with this both with you know like the you know australia thing and the well, i mean we haven't gotten to the fourth dimensional stuff yet but uh mm. i really you know like admire the the breadth and you know of ideas that he tries to put in this but you know it it also like results in such a lurching narrative at points where it's like this whole you know suddenly just like all of like humanity's like collapse is like covered in like a chapter here you know <laughs> you know and you could you know write a whole you know you could base a whole series of novels or you know the setting of us you know australia itself here or you know right and he does it all in a chapter and it's you know it's just kind of a testament to such how odd the narrative is throughout all of this where he like will sit for you know especially like the first half of the previous book and all that he'll you'll have chapters upon chapters of this character's headspace and then like the collapse of humanity all happens in just this one chapter um so yeah i i agree with tim and especially the australia chapter i i stopped caring because i was pretty <laughs> sure none of it was going to matter um, but but I agree. I, I I think this was I think this chapter and then the the other chapter that I'm sure we'll talk about around the fourth dimension stuff was was a lot of here's a bunch of ideas that I read when I was in college and I'm gonna try to stick it in this narrative as well. Um, <laughs> I I like that description of it. But yeah, the Australia chapter I especially did not care about at all. I. I couldn't even tell you what happened in it because I think I probably just skimmed it. I, that's how briefly I, mean, I skimmed it. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, you know, interesting as far as the narrative as a whole. It's just that it, it in the moment, it kind of just gets like frustrating to read sometimes. You know, usually my my anchor to a, a book or, a, you know, a novel or a series of novels are like, you know, the characters and, you know, the through lines there. And, you know, I mean, as, of, as we've gone through this, you know, series, it's obvious that, you know, like, characters aren't necessarily the focus they're just you know the exception of like a tiny handful that they're kind of there just to provide uh like an observer for you know whatever cool sci-fi thing is going to happen in this chapter yeah i mean it, it just it gets a, it, i guess i don't know how to feel about it really because it's just so you know like i suppose you know when, when we're done with this book and you know like we're pretty far along that i like i like the story as a whole it mm. just gets really frustrating to read in like at moment at times and like this chapter and like the fourth dimension stuff were like that for me and, and my frustration with this and and for the same reason i was less frustrated by the four dimensional stuff and i don't know this for a fact because i don't actually remember talking about this but i don't think this australia stuff really matters long term like i don't think it affects the i don't think 
becomes a major plot point in anything going forward. So it was just, here's a hundred pages about how bad humans are. And <laughs> then, we'll, then we'll move on to the next part. Well, I mean, I mean, it, me- it means something if you were like invested in the fate of humanity and, you know, like as part of like, how, how is this all going to shake out? And uh, yeah, but, but, he, know, but he, like the worst, like, and like almost, almost the worst possible thing happens to them. And it's just, you know, but he, but he set everything up and then he undid everything within, you know, right. In, yeah. in less than half of a part. So yeah, I, I guess I, I guess that's why I didn't care. Cause as soon as I got to the end and they're like, oh yeah, everyone's going back home. I was like, oh, well. That was, right, there is. Yeah, there I, is. I want that half hour of my life back. Well, well I'll say I'll say that they're they're leaving Australia, but they they're going back home because the Dark Forest broadcast has been initiated, right? So it has like consequentially changed uh, humanity, and there's probably repercussions for the stuff that happens in Australia, and like humanity is going to kind of evolve differently uh, based off of those events, right? So. Same way, like the droplet attack, where they change a lot of people. Like you, they reference that a couple times. You know about how the droplet attacks like change the military and like people's thinking. I think Australia is going to also change people's mindset going forward as well. Just based off of you know such a traumatic. They they also talk a lot about like the Great Ravine, right? And we don't really see that, but like they that has also you know kind of changed humanity's thinking uh, pretty greatly. Same way, like you know, in in real life, like we would you know, our thinking is changed by stuff by World War II or the Great Depression, like that kind of thing. I, I think just narratively, it's, you know, it, it, it's just, it, it's sort of a repeat of what happens in this, you know, in, in the previous book, this devastating thing happens. And then like, for these sort of weird counterintuitive reasons, like, he, you know, uh, humanity like has like a, a bounce back or this little like rocky moment, you know, with uh, the ships were destroyed by the droplets, you know, and humanity was at its darkest, you know, uh, you know, hour. And then Luigi's, you know, whole spell thing and deterrence that, you know, kind of like brings them back. And then like, this is kind of like that dilemma and that comeback dialed up to 11. So mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like the stakes being raised and you kind of, it's starting to establish like a pattern almost. That's um, almost like, you know, Game of Thrones where you just kind of expect the worst thing to happen now. Like, I don't, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, again, I'm not, I, I don't know what happens in the, you know, we have, you know, half or a little over half of the book to go. Yeah. But this being a little bit of a repeat, you know, of a previous book, you know, seems to be like establishing a bit of a pattern to me. And like, is this like, Lushishin's trick here is to like just dial up the uh the tragedy that happens uh each time and then have a twist at the end humanity comes back in some way or you know punches back in some way i mean yeah there have been a lot of times of humanity becoming overconfident and right failing right and this is the the second or second occurrence of that right or like <laughs> yeah. the cycle you know it's like yeah like given that kind of it feels like there's cycles happening here i guess that means like i'm expecting it to happen again or may, like how you know at this point just to make a quick prediction about the end of the series and i could be obviously wrong like a lot of this has gone in ways you know that i certainly didn't expect but yeah that's kind of like how i think the last half of it is going to go is that like again like the absolute worst thing is going like to happen uh and there's one human left on earth and that one human i don't know blows up the aliens that are blowing up all the other planets i don't know so what, what would be the so the absolute worst thing that could happen would be maybe what i don't know there's like i said there's yeah, there's there's one human left uh-huh. it's, just, it's just that it's just his character and then that human somehow 
destroys the aliens that are destroying all the other planets. I know I'm being silly, but you know, it's just like that's how uh, how it feels. How like like nice. that feels like the pattern, the ramp up pattern that's being established here. Sure, sure. I mean, like, yeah, totally. But let's also jump into the other big part of this chapter was, which was the stuff that happens aboard gravity and blue space. And we kind of alluded to a little bit. Um, and I'm going to start with something that I'm sure Tim appreciated, which is a big uh, <laughs> fourth dimensional space score section where they go and uh, the guy is like trying, the old hunter is trying to activate the turrets and like he sees the the guy in the in the chamber and he like, and all of a sudden it hurts out of his body and <laughs> beating and spewing blood everywhere. And I was like, oh man, Tim's going to be into this. <laughs> well, this, well, this, this was neat, but I couldn't, this, this is where, you know, couldn't quite tell what was going on by the narrative, you uh, know, uh, the narr <laughs> like what exactly happened to him? I guess it's not explained in the moment, you know, but like, it's kind right. of explained later on where they talk about, um, they're using these four dimensional fragments to be able to interact with every part of every solid object. Right. And they even right. say like, be careful where you put your hands because the, <laughs> because like you can hit an eternal organ if you're not careful. And so that's what they did. And that's, and this also ties back into the the very beginning part of the of the book, the Constantinople chapter, where the girl is you know ripping out the the brain of the of the guy is because a four dimensional fragment interacted with the Earth, and she was able to use it for a little while um, until it disappeared. Right, so that's how that all ties back in. Oh but God, I didn't yeah I didn't make that connection in them. Oh yeah, <laughs> in, the, in the moment. So maybe that was you know well maybe it's just a, a consequence of like doing these things. We probably did that episode of two months ago now, but uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, um, like it was, you know, neat. But like previous instance of space gore, where it's like everybody was like pressed into the side of this, you know, and turned into oh, goo. Yeah. Like I understood that from like a matter of physics, and yeah, and like here, like you know, it was such a kind of like whirlwind of me trying to wrap my head around what he's trying to describe, especially this with the, and with the four D stuff. Right. That it was kind of it was really hard to follow. So it's like, okay, his, you know, heart is outside of his body. Now, did it get teleported, like just somehow teleported out, like outside of his body by a fourth dimensional bubble or what? And was it intention? Was it an accident? Like, or it was intentional by, so like the blue space guy, 4D cosmonauts or whatever, you know, yanked his heart out. No, he definitely did it on purpose because you remember um, the the old hunter like shot him like twice, right? Right. And then so like his last resort was to was to use that that four dimensional fragment to you know go and grab his heart, and then you can see and they talk about like his face goes white all of a sudden and like you know loses all uh, like consciousness. And they said, "All right, if we could put it back in because we cleanly took it out, if you, you guys surrender." And they didn't really ever mention if he does do that. I'm assuming they do. It's just like a a cool way to to kind of resolve that conflict without having a gun or whatever right so it's also a parallel to like what they did to the droplets so like the way that you can disable a droplet because we have no idea how they work is that they just use the four-dimensional fragment to jump into one of the fragment or to one of the droplets and just muck around with it and that, i think they even said as much they just like pulled a bunch of stuff out <laughs> like it eventually died uh, and tarnished right and i think it's just you know this this part felt like descriptively like he's quite a bit off a little more than he could could chew here you know because it was you know so like difficult obviously to try to describe you know, or at least what he imagines 4d space is like you know that it was Definitely. like difficult for me to follow and therefore difficult me to 
for me to like piece together what was actually just going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, for sure. Like this part is super confusing and I will readily admit I did not get it on my first, first read either. It's only been on subsequent readings where like when you kind of get how, how things are building up here and like, I wouldn't have put the, put it together that the, that the same thing happened in Constantinople is happening here, but that's sure. what it is. It's like these 40 fragments are kind of like going through and, you know, and they even mentioned like, I wonder if everyone, I wonder if a four dimensional fragment ever interact with the earth. And so like, that's, that, that's the, the tie together. You know, I thought like on maybe on subsequent rereads, like I think he does as good of a job as you can to describe what 40 uh, would be like, because like, it's so, it's so out of our perception, right? Like we just, as people, like we don't have the fourth dimension to think about. So I, I thought he did a good job of explaining, like, especially like when they enter it and like they use the ship and they, they're going really slow and like they can see like all the the things like they talk about like unfurling like um uh, like a roll or something, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I have no concept of what it would be like. I so I have no idea whether he did a good job or not. Like I have no right, frame yeah. of reference. You know? <laughs> My weird Google of the week was so I. I, I thought this was interesting too, the way, the, kind of the way he described it. I, I'd read descriptions of the fourth dimension similar to this before. So I, I thought he, in the context of narrative, I thought he did a good job of trying to explain it. But one of the things was they said something about they didn't want to accidentally touch the wrong thing when they were in, in the space. So they decided to use voice activated commands a lot to do whatever they needed to do there. So I googled how to sound move in for in f the fourth dimension, and Google didn't have any good answers for me, or I didn't bother looking long <laughs> enough. But but I was just curious how sound waves would move in four dimensions, because I know I know I can imagine what they would move like in two dimensions, and then extrapolating that up to three is pretty different. So then I was wondering if someone had thought about what it would look like in four dimensions and whether or not voice commands would actually work or not. So I anyway, thought time, I thought time was the fourth dimension. No, I think no. that's, no. that's I, a, okay. I think, I think that was like a theory like a long time ago, but I think that's been kind of disproven. I mean, dis, yeah, yeah, disproven. I mean, <laughs> I <quotes. I> <laughs> I've never taken physics at that level. So yeah, it's all, I, again, I have no idea whether he's like describe, describing this in some way or attempting to describe this that is like at least somewhat scientifically grounded or not. He could just be completely making it up and I'd be, be fine with me either way. Yeah, I mean, as far as my understanding, again, this is like limited to cursory Google searches and this book and some Carl Sagan videos um, <laughs> talking about like how the four dimensional works. Like, I mean, like it's... I think like this one does a a pretty good job of like seeing like how you can see the same way if you have a two dimensional object as as a third third dimensional person we can see inside that that circle right where if you're a two dimensional object you couldn't see inside that where if you're a fourth dimensional if you're in the fourth dimensional space and you're able to like look inside all of the elements of a three dimensional object right so like that's why they're able to like look inside a body look inside a ship or look inside whatever, like they're able to like, just see all the facets of that three, third dimension. They talk a lot about like, if they look at the ship, they can see like all the pipes, they can see the water. And they talk about it like being an infinite, what I call like an infinite recursion of, of dimension or of, of detail, right? Like they can keep looking down and down and down and anything and it kind of expands. But like, if you think about it, like 
as a visual thing, we wouldn't be able to see elements, right? We can only see like visually like there. So like they can only unfold so much. And and then the other thing I was interested, so clearly you can move from the third dimension to the fourth dimension and not be harmed. But I was wondering if a fourth dimensional character came into the third dimension, what would happen to him or her? Well, they talk about that at the end. Um, So if you remember at the, at the very end of this chapter, you know, we have this section with the ring and the other objects in the four dimensional space, right? Those are four dimensional, those are native four dimensional beings. Yeah. They talk a lot about like the, the ring being a four dimensional, natively four dimensional. Right. And then the space that they're in is like a dying sea or a drying sea. That's kind of uh, uh, always contracting. Right. Um, And then it's contracting enough where the ring actually has to exit out of that four dimensional space. And you can see it like projecting into 3D space by like getting really, really big and turning into this color. And then it's kind of fading away. I don't know if it dies because of it, but you know, they talk a lot about like the, the lines coming out of there and like the really, they talk about like the, the, the horizon or not horizon, but like the space being cut into two because like the, the ring itself like projects so massively across the, the, the expanse because like the ring is so big right but that's that's for an inanimate object i'm like what about a living fourth dimensional being i mean we don't know that the ring is not living oh, i guess okay <laughs> uh, uh, all right <laughs> <laughs> but i guess it's not good you know either way the same way like if we were say like we enter a black hole and like we were pressed into two dimensions right um you they call it like spaghettification right? yeah that where, wouldn't where, be great yeah, so it's it's all you know, going for going from a higher dimension to a lower dimension is probably not good for for anything, right? Especially living or anything else. So I'm guessing it's the same at higher dimensions. You're because they talk a lot about like you can so say you have like a cube like in, in real life, like you have a, a glass cube and you see the shadow of it, right? That's a two D projection of a three D object. So you lose you lose a lot of the there's a lot of it, right? So like it would probably be the same for going from four dimensions to three dimensions where you'd like lose a lot of your, the essence of, of your being, I guess. I don't know. Like it's hard to describe, I guess. Yeah, it's all theoretical. Although, you know, it, 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 even like accepting the premises, you know, that uh, this version of two, 4D space that, you know, he presents here and all that seems hard, hard to believe that like a human, you know, like the, I mean, the human human brain is a construct and an expression, you know, it's a 3D object and it's, it's this expression of 3D physics and all that, that like a human brain would even be able to comprehend. It was surprising to me that like, you know, they were even able to like comprehend anything enough to be productive in that space. Totally, yeah. You'd think it'd be just like totally a centered overload, right? And when you go in there, you're like, you have no idea. It's, everything just looks like mismatched right, yeah. everything. I mean, yeah, why would a, yeah, something built in 3D, you know, like be built in a way that it could even process this? I mean, and they say, you know, he does say that, oh, this just it's overwhelming and all that, but it seems like you just go insane and that's it. Or, you know, it would just kind of obliterate your, yeah. like you just wouldn't have the equipment to be able to do anything in that. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, they talk about like when they exit 3D space or 4D space and go into 3D space, they feel confined, right? Yeah. So like now it's like, oh, I can only see in three dimensions. So it's like maybe maybe our brains are just able to adapt um, or that's the hypothesis here is that our brains are able to adapt to these circumstances. And because we are 3D beings, like we're able to enter 4D space and not be harmed where so going to higher dimensions is okay, but uh, going from higher dimension to lower dimensions, you know, it's, it's more ruinous for people and art objects and that kind of thing 
so yeah i mean like to me like this is the kind of stuff i'm super into like just dimensionality in general i think is like always like super interesting like i've looked at you know after reading the series i've gone back and like looked at like a bunch of materials just to kind of get a sense of like what it's like i'm totally into this chapter uh just just for it that said i have no idea how they're going to film it <laughs> like when I, I i think i said last time like i talked i i said like i this is one of the reasons i think i i brought up the segment of how they're going to film this like this is the real reason <laughs> i have no idea how they're going to film this because like i don't know like the only i've said it a couple of times but the only like representation on film uh, that I've seen of four-dimensional space is the Tesseract from uh, Interstellar. And that was mixed results, I guess, of like how it's how that is, <laughs> of how that was uh, received. Yeah, I mean, I'm into it as well. Like in the macro sense, I think this in this chapter, you know, I I, I think just the the prose and uh, description of you know got a little too tortured for their own good. Like I, you know, I did have a hard time following it. But yeah, I mean, as again is how they, how they would film this i mean they could do anything and since i have no frame of reference i mean is it just is it just like they you know you're going to i mean i guess you could just fall back on like you could you could use weird cg bubbles or something like that to show people going in and then they just describe what it's like and like kind of like i mean maybe that's the best approach just kind of like leave it up to the viewer's imagination you know have some really good explanate or you know some good um you know, exposition about what, you know, some character about what, what it was like in there. Would you like that though? I don't know. I don't I know about like that. I don't know. I mean, you're, you're a resident uh, film expert. How, how do you think they, they should or will film this? I don't know how that would actually work because it seems like, again, it was, it was difficult enough to describe using words. So visually, I don't know how they would be able to do it without it being, yeah, I have, I have no idea how you would do that effectively. I, I agree that I think that Inter, Inter, Interstellar did it, did the best they could. Um, but Yeah, and I think I have like a greater appreciation for it after reading this book uh, and thinking like, well, it, you know, they they represented like all possible outcomes <laughs> or, you know, like uh, I guess like they had like a little bit a different idea of like dimensionality uh, where it was more of like more of like the multiverse kind of stuff, you know, like where you the, the multiverse uh, dimensionality where like all possible outcomes can happen where this one is more at a physical level where you can kind of see all facets of of an, a 3d object in 4d you know um so it's it's a little bit different i guess that the yeah. idea they're trying to get to but still visually it seems silly at the time but like thinking back on it it's like well that's a really really hard thing to show <laughs> I think one of the most cryptic things of the whole series, and there's other cryptic stuff that's happening soon too, but the ring, I think, you know, it's the, our interaction with the ring is probably the most cryptic. Um, and I definitely didn't get it on the, on the first read. Uh, did you guys get anything out of the, the interaction with, with the ring or exploration into the 40 space? I mean, I think he, he's just doing his version of, yeah, like, ancient aliens or precursor aliens or just you know yeah i'm not sure what to think i, I kind of thought of halo the whole time just the <laughs> okay but uh but yeah i i mean i i i i i could see this like being like the, the thing that's maybe like not like i don't know if this is going to be an element going you know, going forward in or in the remainder of this book and whether he's just going to leave this as this like 
weird thing just to kind of keep you guessing at how weird the universe might you know is or if these become like a major plot point um later on but yeah i don't know i think he's just attempting to flex his you know again flex his um astrophysics brain muscles here and try to give us his interpretation of a very very bizarre sort of uncomprehensible alien so i think like the important thing to take away from this chapter the the or section or what have you uh, around the ring specifically is that these aliens, these four dimensional aliens, like didn't always live in this part of 4d space, but they're kind of forced here. And that 4d space is continually collapsing to the point where they can't even fit into, into the the 4d space anymore. And they have to get reprojected into 3d space. I think that's the important thing to take away uh, going forward. Right. Yeah. I mean, he he presents this idea of the universe as something that's like the universe is, you know, big 3D fabric that has these bubbles of 4D space as so as if something is like, you know, like something is decaying here or our universe is the result of like something decaying or in its like, like last stages or of like some degenerative state. So that's kind of how I took it. I think that's that's right. Yeah, I think that's the part I didn't get uh, when I initially read it is that the two, uh, the the ring speaks very cryptically. He's like, "I'm a tomb." I'm, and they said, "Like, did you make this 40 space?" And like, "Well, did you make the sea that you came from?" It's just like where they live. The the place that they're living is like rapidly collapsing. Right. Yeah. So it's like, it it feels like he's yeah like presenting the idea that our universe that we think of is so big and you know impressive and uh, majestic and all that might just be like the stuff that's left over when something dies and rots away or something. Yeah. Cause like if we we're all four dimensional beings, like we would see much, much differently and maybe even higher dimension, right? Like then the, they talk about the Sophons being 11 dimensional, right? So maybe there's five dimensional beings out there that think four dimension is too limiting. Right. I guess like overall, like I know like you guys kind of touched on your, your sentiments of the chapter a little bit, but does this change your, your excitement for the rest of the book? Does it kind of, I mean, it seems like you guys weren't super into it. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested. It's it's just a you know just a bit of frustrating frustration with the writing style, you know. And like, I think yeah, again, I was like kind of the most frustrated with the 4D space in in that like I could very much like he he gave very good good uh, you know it's me going back to space score again or something like that. But I <laughs> you know be because I could like I could really follow what was going on um, and like it, that it that just kind of like fell apart here a bit because he's again, maybe it's trying to bite off more than he could chew. Like I just, I had the, I just had the most difficult time with this section in this chapter, kind of following along what was happening, you know, and it's maybe again, because what he's describing is very difficult to describe, but I think, I think it was just, you know, like the detail, like certain details, like what was happening to James Hunter's heart and why was it suddenly outside <laughs> of his body? You know, the connection back to Constantinople, I guess that again, that just might be because we read that chapter a couple months ago and just didn't make that connection and all that. So Sure. It just might be a consequence of just reading this, you know, kind of like my the reading sections being spread apart like that. But yeah, I just I just had the most dif- you know difficult time kind of following narratively what was going on here. Probably definitely worth you know easier on reread, and it's probably I imagine like is the experience of a lot of readers that this part probably gets re- reread a lot. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and just dis- and discussed, and you know, like it's yeah. I mean, I could see this you know being 
really ripe for internet discussion. Yeah, I mean, maybe just me just coming off a little bit of the shell shock of like just first reading it is a, a, a little more frustration I'm used to with the series. Yeah, I would say that's my experience too. Like the four dimensional chapters, I did not fully get the first, first time I read it. <laughs> and it is it is enhanced by reading it multiple times. And there's, there's other parts of this book too that are enhanced by reading multiple times. I mean, the whole book is worth reading multiple times, I think. But yeah, like kind of getting that that full context and like understanding like why they're talking about this, like, and it'll become, I think it becomes evident to everybody like why they're talking about this uh, later on. Yeah, I, I, I like, well, not the Australia part, but the 4D part, I liked it conceptually. But again, I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't care if James Hunter lived or died. And like that was... That was basically irrelevant in the context of the thing. I think he, Lucy Shin just wanted to show, hey, look at this cool thing that the Sofans can do. And I'm going to take his heart out of his body. And it wasn't actually about the character at all. It was just about uh, the spectacle, I guess. So I'm interested in more spectacle. And I am not so interested in any of the characters anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, he this this whole section takes, you know, takes like involves entirely new characters that you've known yeah you know so it's it's just that that little bit of disconnect you know it's for brand new characters like how could you care about them you know they're just like they're here just to be the the observers of the, the red, you know, what's the red, going on the red shirts tim yeah i mean for you know what's like what's going on in 4d space and this could be you know like this is a big highlight moment and like kind of a cool thing that's happening but it's just that little bit of a disconnect that this isn't being like done by characters that have like built up have reached this point that I followed along. So like it, it just robs and also just you know it being a little hard to follow in the moment. It just sort of like robs it of a little bit of like the power that I think he might have been going for here to me. Yeah, I wonder in the show if they're going to try to reconfigure it a little bit to keep more consistent characters. Like yeah, it is a thing. Like there's a lot of characters that come through and go away uh, right so, yeah. yeah i mean it's like yeah i mean kind of imagine if you're watching this episode of this tv and then this whole you know this whole episode is devoted to this cool thing happening but it's entirely brand new characters that were just introduced that episode you know like it's just like this bottle episode like this 100 percent bottle episode with uh brand new characters who are just there for this episode well i do like those kind of episodes but <laughs> yeah. uh, so like yeah, I don't know. Maybe I would like it. But I don't know if you guys ever watched uh, Mythic Quest. There's like it's like a show on Apple TV, and they have like these couple like episodes, these bottle episodes. They have like entirely different characters, but like are in that world still. And I think it's really those those kind of uh, shows are or those kind of episodes are, are really interesting. Yeah, I could see that happening as a con. You know, if that was the expectation, and you knew that yeah. every episode was like that. But again, you know, it's like he has some characters that have it. Th- you know, and it's just like it's the narrative lurches and shifts so quickly into from the perspective of these longer term characters into these short term characters, you know, that it's jarring. One, one criticism that can be levied is that the plot doesn't move because like a lot of stuff happens in this, this small chapter. Like we go from, from uh, like living in like this, like utopia world, you know, deterrence world to like a great resettlement and just like, of course, a couple of chapters. So I think the, that's that's one one thing that can't be too critical of. Maybe it goes too fast. Maybe that's that is a criticism. Uh, one thing I did forgot to to mention was uh, I want to talk about was the the character of Sofan. So she changes pretty dramatically, <laughs> which I think and you know turns into this this uh, ninja 
person, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and like yeah, starts cutting people person. in half. <laughs> Pretty interesting turn there. Like I, yeah, like the Trisolarians, like, uh, yeah, she's the, she's the, the ambassador for Trisolaris, right? So she like, uh, as soon as the, the ruse is kind of laid out there, she, oh yeah, cuts her hair, has the, the katana on her back. So that was a pretty interesting character development there. Yeah, it's a little video gamey, but yeah, I think yeah. it kind of represents the yeah, the turn. You know, I mean, she's the representative of the heel turn here of the uh, right um, <laughs> the Trisolarans. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, reading lists, pronunciation guides, and all the other content that we put up on the website along the podcast. Please leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate.fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And please join us next time for Season 5, Episode 4, The Storyless Kingdom, covering the first half of Part 3 of Death's End by Leo Sishin.